Hey, thanks for tuning in to the latest sermon. We pray that it challenges you, blesses you, and ultimately that it would stir your heart's affection for Jesus. Enjoy. With that, let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, um, when we think of the scope of violence and destruction, um, things that have been going on for hundreds of years, really, and in you know every decade and every, you know, there's just a cycle. It seems of of violence and and strife. And so, in some ways, Father, it feels it feels like an impossible situation. And yet, you are the God who does things that seem impossible. And so, we just want to join our voice and our prayer with the thousands of other people, millions of other people who are praying as well, that there would be peace, that ultimately there would be peace. Lord, our desire is not really for one or for the other, but for peace, but for all people to live in thriving, uh, peaceful relationship and ultimately to come and know you as their true father. And so, Lord, these things seem impossible, uh, but we lift them to you. And we ask that you would do what is humanly impossible, but that there would be peace uh, Lord, as this conflict goes on, we pray that there would be just a, your hand of protection on those people who are, are innocent people. And Lord, we ask that you would spare them um, and protect them. And so Lord, as we come into our, our message this morning, as we read your words to us about the new, the new wine and the new wineskins, Lord, I pray that um, we would always be those who take your words seriously. And I think about those words outside of the sermon we're doing today, but those words to be peacemakers. Blessed are, are the peacemakers. And so, Lord, even today, I pray that we are those who would make peace. Uh, we see the violence and the strife and the conflict around the world, and we know that we belong to a different kingdom and we have a different king. And so I pray that even in our relationships, we would be people of peace. And as we come to your words today, Lord, uh, we invite uh, Holy Spirit, that you would come and, and speak to our hearts and our minds, that we would receive whatever it is that you have planned for us today, um, that our hearts and minds would be receptive and open to what you are saying, and we pray these things in your name, Jesus, amen. So I was, I was writing the sermon this week, and um, I came across a story that that I couldn't shake. I kind of thought this is, a, this is sort of a, a modern uh, parable or a modern analogy of what Jesus is really trying to say in his parable about new wine in, in new wineskins. And it's a story about the Kodak Film Company. Most of you will remember Kodak, right? You remember Kodak Film Company? And, and uh, for years, Kodak was like the dominant camera and film company across the world. Like they were the, the people who did cameras and, and film. But in 2012, they were forced to declare bankruptcy. They went from being like the dominant, the dominant film company to in 2012 going bankrupt. They still exist now as Eastman Kodak. They mostly produce like chemicals for photo labs and stuff like that. Um, but Kodak has actually become a case study on how companies that refuse to see changes in the culture and changes in the marketplace end up destroying themselves or missing the mark so poorly that they end up completely falling apart. Even giant companies like Kodak that seemed invincible in the 1970s and 1980s. And here's where it all started to go wrong for Kodak. In 1975, they had an engineer, Steve Sasson, who invented technology for the digital camera. But, anyway, but Kodak thought the digital camera didn't fit their business plan because their business plan at the time was to sell cameras at a small profit but then sell film and photo printing services at a high profit margin. 
getting consistent income. They, that was their business plan. Let's, let's sell the camera, almost like printers today. Let's sell the printer for a small profit or even break even, but then we'll just keep on selling ink. And that was Kodak's business plan. The photo developing and the film was where they were making their money. And they didn't think that changing that business plan was a smart idea. So when Stephen told the bosses at Kodak about how he could make this digital camera thing work, their response was basically, that's neat, Steve, but don't tell anyone about it. That's how you shoot yourself in the foot. That's how you end up destroying our business because we don't make money on the cameras, we make money on the film and the photo printing. Now, Fuji Films later developed their own style of digital camera, and Kodak, instead of trying to compete with this new technology, with their own technology that they had, doubled down on their business model and spent the next decade trying to convince consumers that print photos were actually superior to digital. Instead of developing better tech and competing in the marketplace, they wasted a decade trying to save a business model and a technology that was clearly passing away as this new tech gained ground. And you think, man, if they had went all in on that digital camera back in 1975, they would have been, again, ascendant in the marketplace. They would have seen what was coming and been ahead of the curve. But because they refused to change, because they held on to the old, they failed. And I think of this story today because as we observe Jesus' life, we've come, we kind of come to this conclusion that Jesus is coming in to demonstrate to all people a brand new way of relating to God, a new way of living out God's commands. And what Jesus is doing, he's breaking down the old business model, if you want to, but he's breaking down the old uh, way of living, the old man-made kind of burdensome religion, and he's bringing in this new covenant this new covenant that we read in scripture would actually replace the old. And so most of the Pharisees, like the Kodak camera company, uh, they refuse to see what Jesus is doing. That doesn't fit the model of what they want to do. And so most of them double down, challenging Jesus at every turn as Jesus continues to bring people into the new work that God was doing. Every time Jesus is doing something that is new, the Pharisees challenge it. And so we can just look at a couple of the ways that Jesus challenged the religious system of the day. Remember how I said we were going to do like my favorite parable of miracle stories? I've noticed a trend in my favorite parable of miracle stories. They're always when Jesus is pushing the Pharisees' buttons. I have this like bent towards the person who's like kind of going out of his way to challenge the status quo. And so just a couple of these, we saw last week that Jesus used the ceremonial hand-washing jars to turn water into wine. And this was a sign of the changing times because it was the custom to do that ceremonial hand-washing ritual that really the Pharisees had, again, elaborated on and, and created all sorts of weird rules about. If you weren't here last week, you know, I talked about how the Pharisees had taken this hand-washing idea and just, again, kind of went bananas with it, like they did with Sabbath law. They were like, you can only wash your hands, so that you have to dip them in a certain way, you have to hold them a certain way, you have to make sure the water doesn't drip back into the jar, otherwise you contaminated the jar, you have to do it twice, once isn't enough, and it was this really intense process, this system of rules about how to properly wash your hands. And by using those ceremonial jars to turn water into wine, Jesus is telling his followers and the religious leaders, the times are changing. Something new is coming. And if you want more elaboration on that, you can listen to last week's sermon if you weren't here. But from that point on, and this is the really interesting point, ever since Jesus turned the water into wine uh, with those ceremonial jars, Jesus' disciples never do the ceremonial hand washing that every single Jewish person did. 
The Pharisees are very quick to point this out because they're always looking for what can we, you know, nail Jesus on for doing it wrong. And in Matthew 15, they talk about this. When some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem, they asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. And this is a continuous thing that, that the Pharisees challenged Jesus on. Why don't you do the ceremonial hand washing? Everyone else does it. So that's one of the things. But there's other places that Jesus challenges this and he foreshadows the coming of the new covenant. One of those things is his insistence on healing people on the Sabbath. It is so interesting to me that Jesus seems to insist on healing people on the Sabbath. You think of the man who was, who was lame or the man who was blind and he's been like that for years. Jesus doesn't have to do it on the Sabbath. He could come back the next day. Or he could have done it the day before. But there, are, and we're going to find this out, I'm going to preach on this. The sermon is going to be called, Now I See. It's about the blind man being healed. And there are multiple things Jesus does that just poke the Sabbath law. The, not the God's law, but the Pharisees' man-made law. He just does certain things that you are not supposed to do on the Sabbath. So there's that. He heals on the Sabbath very consistently. He also challenges the, the Pharisees about what is clean and what is unclean. In, uh, in Luke, we have this story about a leper coming to Jesus to be healed. And lepers are considered unclean, right? You're not supposed to touch anything that is unclean. And the reason lepers are kind of cast out of the community is because they're unclean. And it's amazing to me how Jesus heals this leper. He touches him. That is not done. And we know that Jesus doesn't have to touch people. When the centurion comes to him and says, my servant is sick, and, Jesus, and you know that he demonstrates great faith, the servant is healed, and Jesus is miles away. Jesus does not have to touch people to heal them, but he chooses to touch the leper. The one who is unclean, made clean by Jesus. And so Jesus kind of consistently is breaking some of these, these man-made uh, laws, but also sometimes just doing things to show us that the new covenant is coming. There is a new way coming. And so in our text today, Jesus has a conversation with the Pharisees because he breaks two more uh, kind of religious norms in his foreshadowing of the new covenant that is to come. First, we see that Jesus is eating with tax collectors and other notorious sinners. And I just think, just pause for a moment. Tax collectors are seen as so terrible that they're not even considered notorious sinners. They're like, not only does he eat with notorious sinners, he's with tax collectors, and that's even worse. Right? So, like, this is, that's a big deal. Like, imagine being a tax collector. You're a hated individual. But these people are considered to be unclean spiritually, and yet Jesus, the rabbi, shares a table with them. That is a shocking thing for a rabbi to do. And secondly, the Pharisees also note that Jesus and his disciples do not practice the fasting rituals like all the other religious leaders. Most rabbis and religious leaders made a, made a show of fasting and, and did fasting often, you know, at least weekly. But Jesus fasted only as he began his ministry. And once his ministry began, he didn't fast. And his disciples didn't fast. And the, and the religious leaders, the Pharisees, question all of these things. So we pick up in Luke chapter 5, and we're not in the parable yet, but I want you to know the backstory to this parable. Jesus has just called Levi, also known as Matthew, to come and follow him. And Levi is a tax collector. So Levi has a dinner party before he leaves everything to follow Jesus. And the only people that Levi can invite to his party are people who are considered unclean, because he himself is considered unclean. So nobody's going to come to his table except for other sinners and people who are considered unclean. And so here's the story we pick up in Luke chapter 5, verse 30. 
The Pharisees and teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained bitterly to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, Healthy people do not need a doctor, but the sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repent. So the Pharisees' religious tradition prevented them from associating with these types of people. And yet Jesus comes to their table. And, and I think, uh, again, most of you probably know this, but if you don't, in those times, to come to someone's table is a, is a sign of friendship and fellowship. You only share a table with someone that you say, we are of the same. Like, we are together. This is a sign of friendship and fellowship. And the religious leaders cannot conceive of something like this happening. A rabbi at the same table as a tax collector and other sinners, how could that be? And Jesus answers them, I've come for the sick. He has come for the sick because Jesus is the one who heals. And Jesus doesn't just heal physically. We see that he heals the sick physically, but he also heals all who are sick spiritually. And everyone is sick spiritually. And Jesus is the one who heals. Jesus' mission statement, if we were to summarize the mission statement of Jesus, it's to call sinners to repentance because that is ultimately how they find spiritual healing. The Pharisees were so concerned with ceremonial cleanliness. Do you do all the rituals properly? And Jesus cared much more about the heart. And he talks about that with the Pharisees in another place. You Pharisees, so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish. What about the heart that is dirty and filthy on the inside? David Flowers writes this. He says, we see here that a new age is breaking in and forgiveness is at its heart. The new age is about inclusion, not exclusion. Inner cleanliness came from relationship with God and from forgiveness, not from external practices. Jesus is inviting all of us to be part of his kingdom mission. The selfish, the greedy, the bitter, the worried, the anxious, the ill, the depressed, anyone usually on the outside of what is acceptable is now invited in because there is forgiveness and new life. This is a message of hope. N.T. Wright explains it like this, and I love how he puts it. He said this, so talking about Jesus sharing a table with sinners and other uh, and tax collectors, he says this is the new covenant spoken of by the prophets. Forgiveness is here, walking down the street, and when people repent, it is theirs. Never mind if it upsets the tidy classification of the old system, this is a party. And like all Jesus' parties, it is a sign of the new age, the new covenant to come. It is for those with eyes to see a miniature messianic banquet. The kingdom of God's arrival is cause for celebration. Like we saw with the miracle at the wedding of water turning into wine, the old ways and the Pharisees' burdensome religion is passing away and a new way of following God's law is coming. And it's time for celebration. And those who we thought would never be invited in are the first ones invited to the party. The Apostle Paul summarizes it like this, this this whole new law coming in, this new covenant. He says, now we've been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. And this is cause for great joy and celebration. Jesus invites his disciples and followers to celebrate with him. They spend their time, and this really is what kind of grinds the Pharisees' gears, they spend all their time celebrating. They're eating and drinking, even with, or maybe we should say, especially with the outcasts and the sinners, the ones who are supposed to be, you know, showing how unclean they are and showing how they don't fit in. Jesus is like, those are the ones that we're going to celebrate with. 
And so they're invited, too, into the new celebration. The old way is gone, and the new has come. The old life can die, and you can be born again. And it's not a second chance. It's a brand new life. And so the image that I think we need to have of Jesus is of a a man filled with joy. He's not there at the table with all those sinners and going, that's what you do wrong, that's what you do wrong, that's what you do wrong, and you've done that wrong, and I don't like that about you, and you've got to clean up your act. No one wants to eat dinner with someone like that. Right? No, I don't want to eat dinner with someone like that. And, and what we're going to find out, and uh, uh, Pastor Jason's going to preach on this, but when he tells the parable of the prodigal son, the reason he tells that parable is because the Pharisees, again, are like, why do all these notorious sinners flock to you? Why do they keep coming to you? And it's because Jesus is filled with joy and because he is a place where they can receive forgiveness and cleanliness. And they go, that's what we want. We don't need the one who says, that's what you do wrong. That's why you're outside the camp. That's why nobody likes you. They need the person who says, hey, this is a way for you to become clean. This is a way for you to be forgiven. And so that's the image of Jesus, is this man filled with joy, ready to celebrate and rejoice at what God is doing and what God has done. And so that's what we read in Scripture, right? The sinners and tax collectors would gather around to listen to Jesus because every other religious teacher and rabbi looked down on them and probably used them as examples of what bad faith looked like. Like they'd probably say, don't be like a tax collector. But Jesus invites these people to the table or invited himself to their tables And then Jesus invites them into the joy of the kingdom of God. Because who wouldn't want to listen to the man of joy teach you about God's kingdom? So this joyful celebration is seen as suspicious by the Pharisees. So they not only question why does Jesus eat with people who are in their minds unclean and unworthy, but they're also confused as to why Jesus isn't fasting like all the other religious leaders. And Jesus explains weddings are not a time to fast, they're a time to feast. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make friends of the bridegroom and fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, he will fast. So a wedding is not just a good time to have a party. A wedding is actually celebrating something new, something that's never been seen before. If you think about what's happening at a wedding, two specific and unique individuals are becoming one and creating a brand new family, something that's never been seen before. And so Jesus is celebrating the new work that God is doing. The new covenant is coming. The old is passing away, and that is cause for much celebration. Jesus, the bridegroom, was about to invite his bride, the church, into his new family. However, the old way, The old way of life, the old covenant, wasn't going to be part of this new family. You can't mix and match the old with the new. It's a brand new thing. In fact, part of the new covenant was the creation of a new family. God's family was going to extend and expand to include all the people of the world. The non-Jews were now going to be able to become part of God's family. They would be his children just as Israel was God's children. Paul explains this new family life and this new family and the new covenant in Ephesians 2. He says, Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united the Jews and the Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. And how did he do this? He did this by ending the system of the law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. 
Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who are far away from him, and peace to the Jews who are near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So what unites the Jews and the Gentiles into one people? There's two things. Paul says the ending of the system of the law is what allows it, and also the ability for all people to come to the Father through the Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done. But this new family, Paul insists upon this. He says this new family could not have existed if the old system of law was in place. This new covenant just wasn't going to fit into the old. It wasn't a matter of mixing new with old because you can't do that. The old is gone, the new has come. And so Jesus now still responding to this question of why do you not fast, why do you eat with the known sinners, tells them this parable. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they'll have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours a new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, this new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No new wine must be poured into new wineskins, and no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. So, unpacking this parable as best as we can, the new will replace the old. And someday that new wine will mature and age and become better. But if you cannot see that the new will eventually become better, you will always long for the old. And in fact, that's actually what you see in the early church with those early believers in Jesus who were Jewish, who also believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But what we consistently find is that many of them were looking back to the old and longing for the old. And they were trying to mix and match the new life in Christ with the old way of the law. And, and that this actually causes so much tension, right? As the Gentiles are coming to faith and there's some of the Jewish people being like, well, you can't just come to faith in Jesus. You also have to do all the laws of Moses. And it's causing all this tension. And so I just kind of want to go through this. This is a bit more of a teaching uh, sermon. We're going to talk about how the new covenant comes in. Uh, and you have to be under the new covenant. You can't put yourself under the old. But so these, these Jewish believers were often looking back at the old covenant. And in response to this, the author of Hebrews explains at length the superiority of the new covenant to the old. We're picking up in Hebrews 8. The author says, If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means he's made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. And he continues in chapter 9. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. But just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why he, Jesus, is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under the first covenant. And then he says this, Hebrews 10, The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. And so it really doesn't get a lot clearer than these words. The old is gone. The new has come. And we must fully embrace the new. We can't look back at the old. And that's what Jesus is telling us in this parable. You can't mix the old and the new. And so often that's even still what Christians try and do. We try and cling on to some of these old principles and we, we forsake the new principle, which is 
living out God's law by the power of the Spirit, not by the letter of the law. And Jesus is saying, you can't do this. You can't put new material on the old, for the new will rip the old apart. And so this is what's happening in the early church. Some of those Jewish believers trying to mix the covenants. Let's take some of the old, mix with some of the new, and really what's happening is it's ripping the church apart. And so some of them were trying to convince the Gentiles that they had to practice all the ceremonial laws of Moses as well as believe in Jesus. And the Apostle Paul is like, that's never going to work. And so he writes to a church that's consumed with confusion about this old covenant and the system of the laws and how that works with the new covenant. And he writes these words uh, to the church in Galatia. He says, I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of the law that I already tore down. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this verse in its full context, so often we just take that last part. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Amen, totally. But really what he's saying is the reason that's true is because I died to the law so that I could live in Christ. He says, so I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. And the temptation, I think, is always to go back to the old covenant law of God. And you, to the old covenant law of God. And the reason we want to go back there is because we do know the law was good. In all of this talk about the new covenant and the new law, we can never forget that the law of God was good. It was a good law. The problem was not with the law. The problem was with us. We couldn't keep the law. So God in his graciousness brought in a new covenant. The law is good, but we cannot keep the law. And so the law was our guardian, but the law could not save and so Paul laments this constant desire to go back to the law that the church in Galatia seems to be wrestling with. And he writes these words, O foolish Galatians, who cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Christ's death was made clear to you as if you'd seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It is because you believe the message you heard about Christ. And then he just continues. He says, those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scriptures say, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of law. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. And this way of faith is very different from the way of the law, which says it is through obeying the law that a person has life. And so you can actually sense Paul's urgency in these words. Oh foolish Galatians, who has put an evil spell on you? Do not place yourself under the law, because if you do that, you place yourself under the curse of the law. And in Galatians 5.4, Paul says, if you're trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you've been cut off from Christ. You've fallen away from God's grace. And so I think this is just the consistent warning for those of us who are religious, who really like to know our, our box of religion, and this is how it looks Anytime we start superseding God's ways to do man-made law, we're putting ourselves under the curse of a law. And, and it, some of us can, can achieve that, and others of us can't. And it's ultimately not going to be uh, leading us to Christ. It's leading us to follow a religion uh, uh, that we make. 
not following the true religion, which is Jesus Christ, the person. (laughs) And so the beauty is that because we are no longer under the law, we no longer need this separation between Jew and Gentile. Everyone is one. There is no longer a clean or unclean people. All can be one in Christ. And Paul ends these words in Galatians chapter 3 with this message. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are all the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. This is, this is amazing. And it, it really would rankle with, with some of the Jewish belief, right? Like how could the covenant to Abraham now belong to the Gentiles? But Paul says because of Christ. This is what has occurred. So Jesus brings in this new covenant, which means God has a new people to call his children. All people can be his children and his portion, and he can be their father through the blood of Jesus shed for us as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. No more dividing walls, no more clean or unclean distinction. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And this new covenant brings us new life. We become in Christ new creations. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done. None of us can boast about it. We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things planned for us from long ago. And so let me end with this. How do we enter this new covenant, this new family? We have to be born again. We have to receive new life. As Jesus explains to Nicodemus, one of the very few Pharisees who sincerely wonder what Jesus is saying and really want to know what Jesus is saying, Jesus says, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Well, how can someone be born when they're old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. And so a profession of faith in Jesus, believing in our heart that he rose from the dead, proclaiming with our mouth that he is Lord, is how we are born again of the Spirit. So that's the one thing, we're born again of the Spirit, by professing Jesus as Lord, by believing in our heart he rose from the dead. But there's a second part. Let's not diminish the role of baptism in securing this new life for us. Jesus is born of the water and the Spirit, and that's what we do when we do baptism. Dead to sin, alive in Christ. Dead to the old life, new in Christ. And this is how Paul puts it in Romans. Have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and we were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. 
We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Dead to sin, no longer a slave to sinful desires, filled with the Holy Spirit and spiritually one with Christ Jesus. The old life is gone and the new life has come. New wine into new wineskin. As Paul tells the church in Corinth, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. I want to call up the worship team as we close here, but I just want to say this. If you want to leave the past life behind, you can. And as I said, it's not about a second chance at the same old life. It's a new birth into a new life. You actually are a new creation, united with Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit to live the life you were always created to live. It doesn't mean you won't struggle with sin or brokenness, but it does mean that your eyes will be open to sin and its destruction. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you can walk away from desires which once ruled you and controlled you, and you can live the life that God has intended for you. And the life that God has intended for you is a life that is filled with his joy, his peace, his presence, and his blessing. That doesn't mean that you're not going to struggle and go through things, but it means you're going to go through it with his presence within you and beside you. And so, this is the life God intends for you. A life that is marked by the the fruit of the Spirit in you. Love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, patience, and self-control. And if you ask and allow the Holy Spirit to help you become more like Jesus, you'll become more fully human more fully alive, more the way you were always created to be. And so if this is something you've never done, if you've never been born again of the water and the spirit, I can invite you today that if you want to leave the old life behind and be born again into God's family, you can come and talk to me or one of the pastoral staff or someone who's up front praying, and you can talk to us about that, and we'd love to talk with you about that. And I also want to just tell you, we have, maybe you've made a profession of faith, but you've never been baptized. Uh, November 19th is our baptism Sunday. So if you've never been baptized, but you're feeling that pull uh, to be baptized, you go, this is what I need. I need to be born of the water and the spirit. Uh, Come and talk to me or fill out a, uh, you can register online and I'll contact you and we'll make sure that you get baptized November 19th. Let's, uh, let me pray for you and then we'll worship together. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you that there is so much scripture that tells us who we are in you and what you've come to secure for us, that we have, been, we have been given to you, that our lives are given to you, not because you uh, demand these things, but because in you we find abundant and flourishing life. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, would you come and fill us today? I pray for those who maybe have not fully given themselves over to you yet, There's some hesitancy. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just assure them that your way is good. Your life is good. The life that you call us to is a life of goodness, a life of joy, a life of peace. And so, Lord Jesus, I ask that you would move amongst us and that we would be your light in the darkness. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's worship together.